So many memories have come flooding back. I put this song on repeat, just crying my eyes out. It made me feel so bloody alive. This song really nails the feeling of nostalgia for a place. And we all just stopped talking and just stared at the radio. Like, what is that? It's part of the noble genre of songs by women about masturbation. I love it. I love that song so much. Box. Meet people through their music with Ash Berdebez on FBI. On Out of the Box today is Boss Queen Yasmin Abdel Majid. If you have in your head a stereotype about young Muslim women that you hold dear, I'm pretty sorry because Yasmin smashed it. She's a Formula One nut, community activist, and works on remote oil and gas rigs as an engineer and trained as a boxer for like five years. Welcome on Out of the Box, Yasmin. Hey, how you doing, Ash? I'm real good. So, what a life. Yeah, it's kind of one of those things. I just was like, where should I not be? I'm going to go there. That's, that's <laughs> pretty much kind of how I've rolled. So you've already fit a lot in in your life. Is it is it odd to ask your age? No, Well, it's not odd, I guess. I mean, I just had my birthday, so I just turned 25. Happy birthday! I know, thank you. The quarter century. <laughs> you've got a biography. Usually if you said, uh, you would, would you like to read this 25-year-old's biography, I'd say, no thanks, I'll go for someone who's uh, got a bit more lived experience. But you really packed a lot in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it's something that, you know, a lot of people ask me, like, how did you write a book about your life at 24? But honestly, I mean, part of the reason when I think about, you know, why, why even write a memoir... Um, how many stories have you read by a young Muslim woman? And how many stories, how many positive stories of young Muslim women or young Muslims or even just young people have you heard full stop, right? You know, that stories that about Muslims that are not related to the hijab or to crime or to terrorism. Yeah. Like those are usually the areas that you find Muslim people in the news. And it's a little bit sad because that's not what our lives are all about. Yeah. It's been such like an amazing opportunity to kind of just be able to speak to people directly through the through a book and through kind of the various stories that I sort of share and I think that's what it's about it's about sharing my story but it's not really about my story it's about the experience of kind of growing up migrant and Muslim post 9-11 it's about the experience of you know having strong Muslim women around me and kind of being confused as to why people thought they were oppressed it's about you know starting a youth organization when you're a teenager and people being like what and you're like (laughs) yeah I'm gonna do what I'm gonna do you know and and trying to create change and sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't and kind of all the little adventures I've had along the way the things I've learned and the questions that I'm still asking and hopefully that encourages other people to kind of also think about those sort of things yeah and you did say you did start a a, uh, youth organization when you I think was 16 yeah when I was 16 I was too busy popping my pimples in the mirror so like I didn't get anything good done right so what I wonder is that (laughs) How, how, when you were 16, did you end up having the initiative to do what other people might have seen needed to be done but never did? My mum says that I had a lot of energy as a teenager. So I could have either started a youth organisation or been a organised criminal mastermind, right? <laughs> and I'm kind of like, you know, kind of glad that I took the youth organisation line, but potentially some part of me sometimes wonders if I would have been an awesome sort of like mafia boss in the nicest way possible, right? <laughs> could have been a something. It could have, it right? Um. I think when I think about, you know, why, I mean, the story of how Youth Without Borders started is essentially I attended this conference and there was a hundred young people from around the Asia Pacific who were talking about the awesome organizations they were a part of. And it was like really inspiring. And, but there was like five different organizations working on youth homelessness and 10 different organizations working on domestic violence or violence against women. And they didn't want to contribute together. They didn't want to collaborate. They didn't want to, you know, work together and pool their resources. And to a, to a 16-year-old, that seemed, like, ludicrous. I was like, shouldn't these people work together? And, you know, I went home. I was complaining to my mom. 
And she was like, well, Yasmina, if there's something wrong, why don't you do something about it? And I was like, oh, touche, ma, (laughs) touche, right? And that's what it was about. It was simply the challenge of why don't you go do something about it? And I went back and I convinced people and they were like, you're 16, what do you know? And to be honest, I think the fact that I didn't know what I was getting myself into actually helped because if I knew how hard it would be, if I knew how challenging it would be, I probably would have been you know, a little bit more reluctant, but I was just like, yo, this is a great idea. Let's do it. And that youthful enthusiasm, that determination to make a difference kind of like allowed us to push through. And we, you know, worked together with organizations to set up mobile libraries in Indonesia. We did football tournaments, you know, shin pads and hijabs, which was getting young Muslim girls (laughs) into football. Yeah. And we've got like in big engineering camps at the moment and things like that. So, but really it was about a bunch of young people in 2007, you know, there weren't really that many youth organizations that were youth led. You know, there was like Oak Tree and Y Gap and really not much else. And it was about showing people and showing ourselves that it didn't matter how old you were. It didn't matter, you know, where you were from or how much money you had. You just kind of really needed to, you know, take the idea and then just follow through. And it's also, I think, part of that is, in, especially in Australia, the tyranny of expertise. I mean, you've got this kind of thing where people need to be an expert and arrive fully fledged on the scene in order to have an input into anything. I was kind of like, oh, you think you're real good, huh? Mm. But I mean, you miss so many opportunities that only young people or unexperienced people can see need to be taken hold of. Oh, definitely. I mean, the fact that, oh, I think that's, I mean, it's so true. The fact that, um, that I was as an outsider was like, here, here's a, here's a problem. And you guys don't see it as a problem because you've just always operated in that framework. But as an outsider, I can sort of see that there's something here that can be improved. It's because I came in from the outside. And actually something that I often tell young people is that we are experts in being young people. We're experts in being kind of like disruptive and, and like a little bit rebellious. That's what we're really good at because, you know, that's kind of who we are. And so rather than trying to be experts and things that we're not, it's about thinking about how can we contribute at our level. And I remember that I, the first time I was on a board, I was on the board of the Queensland Museum. I was 17 years old. And for ages, I was like, you have to sound, I have to sound legit. I've got to like, you know, do all this research and stressing out about it. And my mom was like, Yasmina, you don't have to sound like a fake 50-year-old man. Like, they're not, they're not asking you to be there so you could pretend to be someone else. They're asking you because they want your opinion as a 17-year-old young Muslim woman. And so we need to be, like, prouder of the perspective we give and the perspective that we've got rather than sort of trying to, to replicate somebody else's opinion or, or try to tell people what they think, what we think they want to hear. It's about being really proud of of the way we see the world and sharing that. And we can look a bit into your world over the next hour and also if you do pick up Yasmin's book, which is called... Yasmin's Story. You didn't really think very hard about that, did you? You just went for the low-hanging fruit. (laughs) My suggestion was YOLO. Yasmin only lives once, but they didn't go for it. I I don't know why. Danny Random House. I know. (laughs) The struggle is real. Well, and uh, if you if you do end up buying the book, some of the proceeds, I believe, go to Youth Without Borders, which means you can do cool shit. Exactly, yeah. And you can help more young people be empowered. Nice. All right, so our first song for the hour is Janelle Monáe, mm-hmm. featuring whom? Erica Baidu. Mm, Her Majesty. Mm-hmm. And what's it called? Queen. Why'd you pick this one? Look, on, so this is my alarm clock, right? And I wake up every morning to the to the like sweet sound of Janelle Monae being like, girl. <laughs> and I think I think that says it all. And there's a line in the song, the booty don't lie. Girls, ladies and gentlemen, everyone in between, that booty don't lie. Girl, 
Elmanay featuring Erica Badu, a song called Queen. I mean, like, that is a gift to all women, that song. <laughs> Yo, it is just like an empowering tune. I'm all about it. Yeah, definitely one for the alarm clock. We were talking a little bit about the, the biography that you have out now. And uh, while you've been writing that, it hasn't just been, you know, writing it in the old home office. You've actually been working in a very remote part of Australia yeah. the whole time you've been writing that as well. So where is this remote part of Australia? So I spend my time working on oil and gas rigs um, in Australia and around the world. So I worked a little bit on land rigs kind of in, you know, Western Queensland, Central Queensland, in the desert. Uh, and I've also worked, spent the last, I, I wrote most of the book actually um, on the northwest shelf of Australia. So three hours chopper uh, from Broome, which is kind of like really in the middle of nowhere. Um, and, you know, I would do it bits and pieces when I was, you know, on the plane traveling, um, when I was, you know, after my shift and kind of rather than spending my time binge watching, which I do a lot of Netflix, um, <laughs> you know, it would kind of be thinking, all right, what what part of my story do I want to share? How do I talk about my life? How do I talk about the experiences I've had over the last, you know, 20 something years growing up? And how do I allow people to also find a space to share theirs? Cool. So, and then like in a practical sense, as an engineer on oil and gas rigs, what are you actually doing in the day to day? What kind of takes up your time? Good question. So (laughs) uh, most people are like, "What, what do you even do out there? My first job actually was as a field engineer. So when you drill, um, typically you drill down and horizontally. And I was in charge of the tools that would tell us where we were in the ground, what formation we were drilling through, what direction we were going and allowed us to drill kind of, you know, at an angle. The job I do now is kind of a bit different. I'm, I'm actually, I went, started from the bottom, now we're here. Um, I'm now the drilling supervisor or one of the drilling supervisors. And I'll make the caveat, you know, I'm still learning. I'm still in a sort of like trainee type role. But essentially, I'm kind of responsible for the, the safety of people in the rig. I'm responsible for well design. I'm responsible for, or essentially the design of the whole. I'm responsible for ensuring that the operations are done according to plan and, and, and everyone's working together. So it's a much more kind of, overseeing strategic role but it means that I'm you know negotiating with all the different contractors on the rig I'm trying to understand what's happening in the ground but also making sure everything's prepared so you know we can we can have the future operations work essentially it's a little bit of everything but it means that you're constantly sort of thinking about the operations and you're really kind of present at all times which is is um a, v- a very different experience to say, you know, working in an engineering office. Yeah. And so a lot of a lot of your job seems like it's kind of protecting against disasters. And while I'm kind of more of a leave it in the ground kind of person, that sounds like actually a very important role and a very cool job. Yeah. And I think for me, you know, a lot of a lot of my friends are in the in the kind of like leave it in the ground camp. And I think that's, you know, that's totally fair. As an engineer, the way I kind of look at it is, you know, how can I tangibly make a difference? And part of me is like, well, if we are taking it out of the ground, let's try to do it in the best possible way. Let's try to do it in the way that's going to, you know, cause minimum harm. And and you want people that care about it doing it. So I'm kind of there trying to do the best possible job and, and hopefully also learn about the system and kind of figure out, you know, what does the energy system look like? What does, you know, the whole spectrum of the um, energy environment globally look like? Because I think... Energy is the engineering challenge of our generation, right? There's like 1.2 billion people in the world who still don't have access to electricity. If we want to get them to a place where they're also able to access the opportunities that we take for granted, they also need to have access to energy. So how do we do that in a way that's fair and equitable and, you know, doesn't make it more expensive for them or more prohibitive for them? And thinking about all of that 
you need to understand the current system so that you can either improve it, subvert it, whatever it may be. But it's about kind of getting those foundation blocks. With with the kind of rigs that you're working on, um, so some of them are out at sea, right? Some of them are buttfuck nowhere in the middle of the yeah. land. Um, <laughs> yeah. So what's it like when you're out on one of the ones at sea and there's a massive storm? I've always wondered that. When I see pictures of them, I'm like, that's nuts. Yeah, it does get pretty crazy. Sometimes you have to actually evacuate. So if there's a, a particular level of you know cyclone or hurricane or something coming, they will evacuate everyone from the rig and you have to tie everything down because like if something happens and you're all kind of stuck out there, it's it's super remote. Like, and you don't realize the fact that the minimum amount of time, like you need to get a chopper out there takes hours. Right. And that's if the chopper can even fly in that weather. So you need to, everything is about, you know, minimizing risk. Uh, but I mean, sometimes you kind of get like lots of swell and it's just, you're really at the mercy of the elements and you get lots of training and we've got to do like this thing called Boziet, which is like basic offshore safety emergency training. Right. And they like put you in a helicopter kind of frame, you buckle in and the helicopter, the kind of body of the helicopter goes underwater in a pool. They flip you upside down and you have to like, you know, undo the buckle and escape out of a window to like train you like in case something does happen what as in like they basically have to drown you yeah but i mean you kind of like have a safety vest on and you know so but this is like every single person has to do it every couple of years so that just in case something happens you are trained and prepared that's good but i mean the thought of that makes me really claustrophobic (laughs) yeah it's um it's a tricky one so i mean it's not very not very common for women to work in that field you would, would have known that when you got into it. Maybe that was part of the attraction anyway. Yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of funny. Some some people are like, oh, my God, it must be so awful to be out there with all the men. I was like, yeah, so awful. It's pretty funny. Like, I think part of me was attracted to it because it was an adventure. Like, you know, I was like, I don't really know what it's going to be like. I have no idea. I actually, the only exposure I had to offshore experience was reading a book called don't tell my mom I work on an oil rig. She thinks I'm a piano player in a whorehouse, right? Like that was my own. And, and it was like, you know, a really terrifying book. I was like, oh my God, you know, life is going to be so hard. It's going to be so hectic. I was the first woman that my department hired in Australia. As an ever. As a field engineer ever, right? Wow. Um, and most of the rigs that I went on for the first couple of years of my life uh, in, in the field had never had a woman work out there before. So you're talking about environments that are still kind of just allowing women to kind of get there. But I love that. I think it's such an adventure. I'm like, oh my God, you know, my life is a Enid Blyton book or whatever. <laughs> and so I kind of look at these things as like opportunities to connect with people that I wouldn't usually connect with and be in places I wouldn't usually be. In that case, do you have any kind of stories about, you know, what it is like these kind of like illustrative experience of what it's like to be <laughs> the only woman on an oil and gas rig. It's, it's so like, I distinctly remember the first time I went on, on one of these rigs. Um, one of the blokes said to me after about a week or two, we'd finally, you know, finally they'd started to talk to me because they were a bit terrified. Like they were like, what do we even say to her? What is it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what is this creature doing in our midst? Uh, one of them was like, yo, it's so funny. Like, one guy spotted you in the car on the way in, like about a kilometer out, and he was on the radio like, guys, 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 there's a chick. She's coming. She's, and he was like, there, you know, heads popping out of track, like tractors, like meerkats, you know, and be, like and everyone within minutes knew that I was coming. And I had no idea any of this. Just like imagine like all of these men being like, oh, my God. 
sounds like you know, you know, at wartime yeah. when you'd send out like a pop star to like entertain the troops. This is what it sounds it's like. Exactly for you. like that. And I remember I was on one rig for long enough that the guys, like, I was one of the guys' friends. Um, and then another chick came onto the rig to visit, and it was just, it was like exactly like that you know it was like guys 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 have you seen her oh my god what does she look like oh i think oh my god she looked at you yo she smiled at you you are so in you know and it's just it's hilarious and often you know it's nowhere near as hostile as you'd expect most of the time they're just excited to have someone different out there to talk to some of them don't really know you know they they, tr- they have to suss you out they don't know if you're going to take offense at stuff straight away you know the legislative change is there so they're they're worried that if they say the wrong thing that you'll get offended and report them and that kind of thing so you kind of have to you get to set the tone really as to what's acceptable behavior and what isn't how do you do that how do you set the tone you have to be on the front foot So, you know, different people find different ways. The way I've done it has kind of been, you know, I'll go on the rig and I'll start the conversation and I'll be like, hey, guys, you know, I'll swear a certain amount. I won't say certain words. And, you know, if they if they drop certain words and apologize, I'll be like, mate, don't worry. You know, like I swear more than you or I've got one of those. It's okay, You can say that, Um, (laughs) which always shocks them and is hilarious. But then you have to be strong enough. And this is something I've it took me time to learn. That if they say something that, you know, crosses the line, you have to say that crosses the line. That's not okay. Terms are used for, you know, bits of equipment or processes and stuff that that hark back to, you know, words that used to be socially acceptable, right? The N-word and so on and so on. And I'm like, actually, no, you're not allowed to use that around me. Yep. And that's not okay. This other stuff I'll accept, but this I won't. And 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 kind of then almost using it as an opportunity to kind of explain why that's not okay, they may not care, but it might sit in the back of their mind. It might form a little seed that kind of over time can grow. After all the book tours, what are you going to be doing? Are you going to be going back to an oil rig somewhere? Yeah, so I literally finish the tour and then head back out. Straight it's out. crazy. And it'll be, it'll it'll be make- like a holiday from touring. It'll be so good. <laughs> it's going to be really funny. What did you do when you time off, Yasmin? Oh, you know, life. <laughs> it's cheeky. So we've got a song now called Coming Home. And why did you want to pick this one? So every time I get on the plane to head back home after one of my hitches, I would play a little home playlist, I guess. And this was one of the songs on it. Um, And every time I hear it, I'm reminded of the relief I have of kind of, you know, basic things like eating a kebab and, you know, (laughs) the small pleasures in life that you don't get offshore. I feel like sometimes, like, people can kind of relate with that, you know, when you cry while eating a kebab. This is so beautiful. It's 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 a thing, guys. It's a thing. <laughs> to, the, to the sound of this song, you eating a kebab and crying. <laughs> That's it, guys. Believe in it. I'm coming home. I'm coming home. Tell the world I'm coming home. Let the rain wash away all the pain of yesterday. I know my kingdom awaits. And Forgiven my mistakes I'm coming home I'm coming home Tell the world I'm coming I'm back where I belong yeah. I never felt so yeah. strong yeah. I'm, back, I'm feeling like there's nothing I can't try And if you with me put yeah. your hands high Put your hands high You haven't lost a life before hey. This one is for you, me put your hands high. Your dreams are filled, you're rocking with the best. I'll be on the song. I hear the tears of a clown. Uh, I hate that 
song. I always feel like they're talking to me when it comes on. Another day, another dawn. Another Keisha, nice to meet you, get the math, I'm gone. What am I supposed to do when the club lights come on? It's easy to be pumped, but it's harder to be shown. What if my twins ask me why I ain't married a mom? Damn, how do I respond? What if my son stands with a face like my own and says he wants to be like me when he's grown? Damn, but I ain't finished grown. Another night, the inevitable prolong. Let's go. Another day, another dawn. Come on. Just tell Keisha and Teresa I'll be better in the morning. Another lie that I carry on. I need to get yeah. back to the place I Let's go. I'm coming home. I'm coming home. I'm coming home. Tell the world I'm coming home. Yeah. Let the rain wash away all the pain of yesterday. Ain't no I know my kingdom awaits. And they've forgiven my mistakes. Check this out. A house is not a home. I hate this song. Is a house really a home when your loved ones is gone? And people got the nerve to blame you for it. And you know you would have took the bullet if you saw it. But you felt it and still feel it. And money can't make up for it or conceal it. But you deal with it and you keep balling. That's why some lick the playboy and we keep balling. Baby, we've been living in sin because we've been really in love, but we've been living as friends. So you've been a guest in your own home. It's time to make your house your yeah. own. Pick up I'm the phone. Pick up the phone. us now i love that song whenever it comes on it makes me feel strong i thought i told you that we won't stop till we back cruising through harlem these old blocks is what made me save me drove me crazy drove me away then embraced me forgave me for all of my shortcomings welcome to my homecoming yeah it's been a long time coming a lot of fights a lot of scars a lot of bottles a lot of cars a lot of ups a lot of downs made it back lost my dog miss you bitch but here i stand come on a better man. Don't stop. Better man. Thank you, Lord. I'm Thank you, Lord. through their music out of the box see the nation through the people's eyes see tears that flow like rivers from the skies where it seems there are only borderlines where others turn Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Tune into FBI 94.5. My name is Ash Berdebez, and my guest on Out of the Box today is Yasmin Abdel Majid. She works on remote oil and gas rigs as an engineer, and she's also just had her first book published and she's done a good many other things, for example, founding uh, Youth Without Borders. And uh, I thought I'd ask a little bit about your early life because that song. That song is from... So it's linked to uh, Sudan, actually. So I was born in Sudan, and the song is called Living Darfur. And it was actually the first kind of pop song that I heard in English that had anything to do with where I was from. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, you know, it's actually in Sudan. And the video clip is beautiful. It's shot in Darfur, which people sort of see as this, you know, war-torn, famine-ridden place, but actually also has, you know, beautiful people kind of just living their lives and it was amazing for me to sort of see that portrayed in a positive way which I loved 
And so your parents left there at what age were you? So the story goes that I was about a year and a half. Um, my parents moved to Brisbane, the south side of Brizzy, and we were probably the second second Sudanese family in Brisbane. So, you know, you know, bringing it in early. And how of all places did you end up in <laughs> Brisbane? Like because I just I just don't think it's the first one on everyone's list. Yeah, look, I think it's it's a funny story actually. My mum had a pen pal. My mum had a pen pal uh, from from Brisbane. My parents both went to kind of like um, Christian schools in Sudan, and it was English because obviously Sudan was a British colony, and the good schools were run by the English at the time. And so my mum had kind of been really keen to sort of you know communicate with people outside her her world, and and somehow found this family in, in Brisbane and they kind of took us in for the first couple of weeks that we lived in Australia and they're still family friends today and I talk about them in the book Yasmin's story which is like really kind of exciting in, like to be able to kind of say these guys actually you know brought us into the world and they brought us into the world that is Australia and they made us feel really welcome and the fact that they made us feel welcome enabled us to feel like Australia wanted us to be here from the get-go which was pretty amazing. That's really remarkable. Yeah. And I mean, why were you here in the first place at, at age at age one and a half? What was going on in Sudan? So my mum, my mum's a bit of an activist. Um, and, you know, just a couple of years before I was born, there was a coup. So, you know, the classic overthrowing the government type thing. And the government at the time was an Islamist or it was a Muslim Brotherhood sort of based government. And they were bringing in a whole bunch of new rules that, suppressed a lot of opportunity and suppressed a lot of freedoms and it's funny like my I was born kind of after curfew and you know it, it was one of those curfews where you'd be shot on site if you kind of um were out like before like after 10 10 or 11 p.m right so wow. it was like hectic and my mum and dad you know they they just jumped in the car my mum's like in labor almost jump in the car and rushing towards this checkpoint where somebody had been shot right um because they and my dad was just like, oh, my God, are we going to survive? And my mom's like wailing in the back. And this is a story my mom tells. They get to the checkpoint and this guy like just appears and, you know, with a, with an AK, obviously. And he's like, what are you doing? And my dad's like, my wife's about to have a baby. And then the dude apparently is like, what are you doing, man? Get to the hospital, right? Like, you know, come on, man. Your wife is having a baby. Why, why, why are you stopped? And so, because you're going to shoot us. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> exactly. So it's this, what? like, hilarious moment of just, like, humanity despite all the kind of chaos. Mm. And my mom, you know, she kind of got into an argument with someone from the secret police and everyone thought she was going to get tortured and blah, 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 as, you know, as happens. Um, and, my, and my dad, he reckons that the kindest people that he ever met on his travels outside Sudan were Australians. And so he wanted to move to Australia. And yeah, I guess that's how we ended up here. And so when they got to Australia, they'd been previously uh, architects and engineers. Yeah. So mum was an architect in Sudan. She actually ran her own business. And dad was, you know, a well-established engineer. He was a lecturer at the university there, one of the youngest lecturers, had a PhD from Imperial College. Like, my dad's super smart. And so is my mum. But and you so know, are you. Yeah. <laughs> yay. Um, <laughs> and... You know, and they came to Australia and they had to start from scratch. They gave up everything essentially for this child that just pooed and cried. Like those are my main objectives in life at that stage, <laughs> right? But, you know, they gave everything up for the hope of a future and for the hope of, of a better kind of world for their daughter. And um, and it was incredibly difficult for them. Like, and I can't, like, I can't imagine what it would have been like to sacrifice everything for the hope of a better reality. Like, 
I don't know if I'm that selfless. Like, to be honest, to imagine, and it's like in a time when there was no internet, it was like a couple of minute phone call to the fam once a week type thing where you used to be surrounded by family, you used to have this support network that kind of, you know, had your back at every turn. And then you come into this new world that just operates on completely different even the language, like the language was different. My parents could speak good English, my good English. My parents could speak English well, but you know, there was bits and pieces of Australian language. Like the fact that, you know, somebody invited my parents over and they said, bring a plate. And my parents were like, oh, they must be really poor if they can't afford plates. So <laughs> my parents took a whole bunch of plates and knives and forks, like, you know, to, to help everybody. And then, you know, they rock up to this dinner party with a bunch of cutlery and crockery and, you know, everyone's equally as confused, <laughs> right? <laughs> because bring a plate means, you know, to my parents, it was like, bring a plate. And to, to the Australian family, obviously, it was bring some food. But I really hope everyone laughed together oh about that God. and got at the time. Yeah. Is it just hindsight now? <laughs> yeah. Oh. In hindsight, it's like, oh, that was lols. At the time, everyone was like, I don't understand. <laughs> yeah. It's all right. We're fine for plates. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, basically your your parents are kind of like academics and activists who are sleeping on someone's floor in a mattress for however so long. So how do you get back on your feet as a young family mm. who's completely kind of displaced? My mum says to me that they always had trust that hard work would get them where they needed to go. And I think that's a really special attitude because obviously, you know, there are things like structural inequality and structural biases and stuff that do like serve as barriers and obstacles but my parents I suppose had this like unfailing optimism that if they just found a way to work within the system they would be able to find like to get to that better future so my parents went back and studied again you know they didn't go back because my mom's degree wasn't recognized and my dad couldn't find work in engineering they they went back dad went and did a master's in IT mom you know stayed at home with us for a while but she did like a couple of masters while she took care of the kids so just she casually kept, just casually she kept herself busy and they constantly reinvented themselves my dad has had four or five careers in like IT and migration and you know state development and mom went from like international business to manufacturing policy to working in Aussie to running you know a multicultural community center so like they essentially never sat idle and I think that's a lesson that I sort of like took from them is that you always find a way to make something happen and then I guess it probably would frustrate you more than most people when you hear people talking about kind of like oh but we can't let refugees in our country the the offshore option is good because you don't want them coming here and bludging off off the welfare and you're like oh my god so many skilled people that just like want to survive yeah and I think that's like it's such a such a poignant point is that so many refugees that come to Australia are people that are looking for a better life. They're not moving because, you know, the weather was bad, right? They're moving because they literally don't have any other option and they are so hungry to like work hard and to provide better opportunities for their children and just to kind of like exist and create a better, like a better world. I often think about how do I connect with people who have really different perspectives to mine? Because, you know, I work with a lot of guys that think Donald Trump is actually not that bad, you know? And yeah. And like that, the thing is, right. They, these people do exist and they do have opinions that are worthy at least of paying attention to. And I don't agree with them, but what I need to do is find a way to communicate with them because if we both think each other is an idiot, then nothing will change. So it's about how do I like rein my anger in and think, 
okay, what is it that you're actually afraid of? What is it that you're actually talking about? And how can I connect to that and be and have that human yeah. connection? So in short, how do I come to the table without flipping it? Exactly. I really like that analogy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to sit at this table. I'm going to control myself. Yeah. And go from there. All right. Well, our next track for this show is Tracy Chapman. And which one do we have? It's called Across the Lines. Now, I grew up on this album, this Tracy Chapman album. It's a very revolutionary type album. But this track in particular, I, I remember thinking, you know, as a child, learning every single word and thinking, gosh, there's so much difference and there's so much kind of, you know, boundary, focus on boundaries, but really we're we're all the same and, and trying to look past that.
joined in the studio by Yasmin Abdel Majid, who is the 2007 Young Australian Muslim of the Year, 2010 Young Queenslander of the Year, many other accolades follow, but she's also a total rev head and, uh, and, and a boxer of sorts. So you're obsessed with motorsports. Yes, it's a thing. Like, you know, like sexy cars, sexy engines, sexy, you know, CCs. And by CCs, I mean cubic inches. Like, it's, <laughs> sorry, that sounds really strange when I say sexy it. CCs. <laughs> those are some nice chips. <laughs> yes. But I mean, I, I love cars. I love racing. I love Formula One. I oh. love a lot of things that, you know, a lot of people are like, why, why, why does the smell of burning rubber, you know, get you going? But. There's just something about it. Like, it's a real visceral experience. I think that's the thing that I keep I keep going, why do people like cars, fast cars? Why do people get so obsessed with it and, you know, consume their entire life? Answer I get every time is pretty similar to that. It, there's just something about it. But really, like, what has been the highlight of your motorsports obsession so far in your life? You know, Ooh. what cool things have followed? Well, okay. So I kind of went down the path of wanting to, you know, initially I wanted to be the first female black Muslim Formula One driver. Like, that was my aim in life. Didn't quite happen. So I, like, changed my opinion slightly, changed my direction slightly, and decided to get into the world of motorsport from an engineering point of view. So I ran my university's race team, designed my own chassis, built it, put it together, raced it. That was awesome. What, you raced your own car that you built? It was a maze. It was a maze. Like, okay, I will tell you a little secret, though, because I worked with a bunch of guys. I, You know, we all built the car together. But then they designed the car seat. Now, they designed the car seat for their rear ends yo (laughs) i had way too much booty so i like get to sit in this car i'm like guys my hips are bigger than yours they're like um yeah about that and so i just had to like sit with one of my hips like poking out of the seat because i'm like i'm gonna sit in this car i'm gonna drive this car car. yeah this is my car i don't care how big my booty is i am gonna sit and so like yeah any like hot tip for you for any people designing cars for women like take the childbearing hips into account um So, you know, that was awesome and exciting. I went to England to sort of start working in motorsport, got offered a job in Mercedes, like offered work experience at Mercedes F1. Wow. Yeah, it was all kind of happening. And then kind of realized that the reality didn't didn't quite match the expectation. And running my own race team was very different to being an engineer in F1. Being an engineer in F1 would be about like super detailed design. And it was like the epitome of engineering excellence. But I wouldn't be traveling around the world, you know, with the race car drivers and thinking about strategy and thinking about this and that. I would be very detailed engineering. It turned into an office job. Pretty much. And that's kind of not what I was getting in there for. So alternatively, I, you know, I came back to Australia and I got into writing about motorsport. And so I I wrote for a website called Richards F1, which is now called Motorsport Mate. And with that, I was able to go to, you know, the Australian Grand Prix, the Malaysian Grand Prix, Barcelona and Monaco. So the highlight, yeah, man, the highlight of my, you know, motorsport career so far has been walking the track during qualifying. So I was like along the track during qualifying, which is like the best time in Monaco. What is qualifying? Oh, qualifying. So essentially, you know, the race is on a Sunday, but to decide what the, like, what order you're going to go in on the grid, on the starting grid, you have what's called qualifying, which is kind of like a... Um, a knockout kind of race in on the previous day on the Saturday. Okay. So qualifying is where the cars go hard because they need to get the fastest possible time so they can you know get pole position or get number one on the grid because you want a good position. Yeah, on you want the an grid. advantage. Exactly. Yeah. So to be on the tractor in qualifying is like 
unheard of. But I somehow hustled my way into, you know, walking along the track during qualifying in Monaco, standing next to this tunnel and hearing, like smelling and hearing the sound of these like amazingly designed engines just like whooshing past me. And that's, it's like, it's a total sensory experience. It's sound, it's smell, it's, you know, you can taste the rubber. It's just amazing. Well, now I'm into bracing all of a sudden. Yes. <laughs> and after uni, you're actually you're offered a bit of an, a, an exclusive spot in the UK doing a, a Masters of Motorsports. Yeah. Why didn't you take it? Probably one of the toughest decisions of my life not to take that. Partly because, you know, the reality didn't match the expectation. But I had a conversation with my uncle um, and my uncle was like not convinced that motorsport was what I should do with my life. I was like, no, 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 this is what I want to do. Because this master's in motorsport, they take 30 people a year and pretty much you do it and you're guaranteed a job in F1. He he asked me this question just kind of out of the blue. He was like, Yasmin, what is the first thing you think about when you get up in the morning? And uh, my immediate response was helping people. And I was like, oh, wait, but also motorsport. But that planted a seed of doubt in my mind. I was like, am I, is this pursuit, you know, something I love cars and I love motorsport, but am I making the best use of my parents' sacrifice? Like, am I, you know, I'm so lucky and so blessed. My parents gave up everything in their life for me to have these opportunities. Am I going to give all of that up so that I can work in the Midlands of England on a sport that I feel very strongly about, but really may not have an impact beyond me and this race team? Hmm. How how am I going to make the best use of the opportunities that I've been given? And, you know, I'm Muslim. And so I guess a lot of what I do is has a, a sort of a, a faith-based element to it. I believe that one day I will be asked, I gave you these gifts and these opportunities and these blessings. What did you do with them? How did you make the most of them? And I couldn't say that me working in an F1 team was making the most of the gifts and opportunities that I'd been given in life. Fair enough. A different person wouldn't even think that way. Yeah, I and they would have gone and done the course. <laughs> and yeah, and the rest, the rest of the guys on my team were like, "You did what now? You said <laughs> no to what now?" They're like, oh, poo. "Yeah, yeah, ex- exactly, right." Like, and it was a really hard decision for me to make because I had been working up to that moment for my entire, you know, teenage life. So our next track is by Daryl Scott called "You'll Never Leave Harlan Alive." Sounds pretty dark. Now, why do you want to bring this song on? This is a song that's tied to one of my favorite TV shows, Justified. It's about two things. One, it's about the fact that I I watch way too much Netflix. And when people ask me, Yasmin, how do you take time off? So I want to give them a serious answer, like I cycle or or I read. But the reality is I just binge watch a lot of TV. But also somehow I've fallen in love with country music because it like tells a story and it tells, it talks about a pain and a desire that's, you know, that we all kind of have in common, this desire to live a good life and to have a future. And this song is kind of, it tells the story of this community that was really torn apart by resources and, and people coming in and saying, you know, dig for coal or whatever it may be. And, and they were never able to escape that. But I've, I, just, I just find it incredibly poetic. And yeah, a, a good tune. Awesome. It's Daryl Scott. You'll never leave Highland alive. In the deep, dark hills of eastern Kentucky, that's the place where I trace my bloodline. And it's there I 
You will never leave the Harlem alive. Well, my granddad's dad walked down Catherine's Mountain, and he asked Tilly Hilton to be his bride. Said, oh, "Won't you walk with me out of the mouth of?" a holler but we'll never leave a heart alive where the sun comes up about 10 in the morning and the sun goes down about three in the day and you fill your cup with whatever bitter brew you're drinking you spend your comes up about ten in the morning and the sun goes down about three in the day and you fill your cup with whatever bitter brew you're drinking and you spend your life just thinking of how to get away and the sun About ten in the morning and the sun goes down About three in the day And you fill your cup With whatever bitter brew you're drinking And you spend your life Digging coal from the bottom of your grave In the deep 
bit of Daryl Scott on your radio, a bit of country on Out of the Box on FBI 94.5. You'll Never Leave Harlan Alive by Daryl Scott, brought in by my guest who has been here for the past hour, Yasmin Abdelmajid. And it's been really great having you in and talking about all the very many things that I never, ever get to talk to other people about on the show. For example, Formula One and working on oil and gas rigs. I mean, I've never really had conversations about that before. Your book covers a lot of that kind of stuff and people can pick it up. It's uh, put out by Random House. Can I ask, why did you want to make this book in the first place? Thanks. Yeah. Thank you for allowing me to talk about that. I think I go around the country and I ask groups of people, be it high school students or, you know, business people, how many stories of young Muslim people have you ever heard? How many positive stories of Muslims full stop have you ever heard? And by and large, in a typical group of people, in a typical group of mainstream, quote unquote, Australians, not that many people have heard any stories written by young Muslims, written by young people, full stop. Not many people are exposed to positive stories about Muslims. Like when I think about the way that Australia reacted to the Paris attacks versus the Beirut kind of bombings that happened at a very similar time, a lot of my Muslim mates and my Arab mates were really frustrated that people didn't seem to care about Beirut as much as they did about Paris. But the thing is, we know Paris. We've seen movies about Paris. We've read books about Paris. We know Parisians. Yeah, we know Parisians. And so Paris is a familiar world. But for a lot of people, Beirut is not a familiar world. They don't know what, you know, what romance looks like on the streets of Beirut. They haven't met, you know, someone who talks about the beautiful food they've eaten in Beirut. And so I guess it's about making the unfamiliar familiar. I guess it's about... like talking about the life of a young Muslim person, not as kind of, you know, this anthropological exercise, but just as another fellow Australian who's kind of grown up in this environment, had to deal with the usual teenage angst while also representing my religion to, you know, everybody that wants to ask me about it. Yeah. And it was also about giving, hopefully allowing other people permission to share their own stories. You can't be what you can't see. Right. And, this was kind of also about showing other young Muslim girls that, you know, it was possible for them to get amongst doing a whole bunch of things that perhaps people wouldn't expect them to be doing. And also about showing, you know, your random middle-aged white dude that, you know, I love cars and we can connect over, you know, similar sort of topics and, and just have a laugh about the crazy things that happened to me in, in the course of, you know, living life as a young Muslim brown girl in Australia. Yeah. So it's, yeah, about sharing stories. I think it's very timely. And the Beirut, example is a very good one because I mean like as a tool of you know making people afraid of certain types of people or making people unsympathetic to certain types of people what you do is you put a lot of kind of similar images together and you have a mass rather than individuals which is why I think individual stories from people like you are so important yeah hopefully hopefully this is like one of the first stories that people start to read and and hopefully more and more people will be sharing their stories of different perspectives and difference and hopefully won't be so unfamiliar anymore Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on Out of the Box. Thanks, Ash. And our last song before we go, Blue Juice. Why this one? Every year, at the beginning of every year, I pick one song that's going to be my theme song for the year. And I remember hearing this song at the end of 2014. I was like, this is going to be my song for 2015. And it's all about doing awesome things and working.
Too many demons wasting all my time 